You are listening to Talking Images, the official podcast of icmforum.com. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Chris, and in this episode, Clem, Mathieu, Sol, and I will be counting down our five to ten favorite films of 2017. First, each of us will quickly go through our tenth to sixth place at lightning speed, and then the main event, our top fives, where we will open each film up to the panel for further discussion. The structure is simple. We will go in a circle where each of us presents our fifth choice. Then once we're all done, we move on to our fourth choice, third, second, and finally our number one personal favorite film of 2017. If a film happens to be on multiple lists, we'll skip it for the lower spots and allow the person who loved it the most to present it. This is also because as our love for the film grows, they will get more focus and more time. However, this is possibly our personal best, as there are only two single overlaps. So, with that all out of the way, let's just jump right into it. Clem, uh, kick us off. Uh, what are your uh, favorite films that just missed out of, the, of your top five? Hey everyone, this is Clem. Uh, okay, so from 10 to 6, we have at number 10, uh, Sarah plays a werewolf. At number 9, we have the Chinese documentary Mrs. Fang. At number 8, we have The Killing of a Sacred Deer. At number 7, we have the documentary In Praise of Nothing. And at number 6, barely missing, we have uh, the Chinese animation film Have a Nice Day. And what about you, Mathieu? Okay, well, I've got the Israeli film Foxtrot, you know, this drama about a family learning their son has died in military service, and then it kind of goes in a very different direction, very Kubrick-style direction, and, and a lot of different tones in there. Uh, then Dunkirk, I don't think there's much need to present that, I think everyone knows, knows that film. Uh, then Atomic Blonde, a film that I don't know, I don't get the, the love for John Wick when this exists, and it has an actually charismatic actor at the center. Unlike Kenny Reeves. Anyway, uh, then I've got um, I, Tonya, the Margot Robbie uh, film about the ice skating scandal. And then uh, An Obscurity with Makala, which is a documentary about a Congolese guy who has to sell charcoal and has to kind of carry this charcoal to the city. Uh, it's a very, very affecting documentary. I really recommend it if you can, can find it. And Sol? Hi, it's Sol from Australia. In our 10th spot, I've put Ruben Ostlin's The Square, his Palm Door winning film about a curator of your museum or art gallery, and they basically put out an ad which is really in terrible taste, and he has to apologise for it, for something which he didn't do, and yet he won't apologise for something which is his fault. So there's a few different interesting dynamics going on there. In ninth spot, I've put The Shape of Water, the... Uh, Guillermo del Toro film, basically a love letter to uh, the 50s uh, B monster movies, but that probably doesn't need an introduction either. In eighth spot, I've put Good Time, a great film from the Safdie brothers with a whole lot of neon on there, which I absolutely love. I love films that really bathe in neon. Uh, in seventh spot, I've got Baby Driver, the Edgar Wright film. Probably doesn't need much of an introduction either. And in sixth spot, I've got The Endless, a great film about an abusive cult with a bit of a sci-fi twist. It's probably, I'd say, pretty much everything that Midsummer should have been. So if you haven't seen The Endless, I recommend checking it out. 
And without giving away too much, at least one of those five films will crop up later on in the podcast. Very good. And uh, on my uh, number 10, we have Darren Aronofsky's Mother, which is just an incredible sensory experience of maddening proportions. And my number nine is uh, The Florida Project by Sean Baker, which is just yet another incredible visceral experience uh, here balanced with getting the heartbreaking naivety and crassness. What's striking is that it captures the world of poetry through this sense of childhood playfulness, which hits you really hard. Um, my number eight is uh, a ghost story, which uh, just to do spoil it, we will talk about a little bit later. On the seventh place, uh, like Soli, I also have The Square by Ruben Östlund, which is unnerving, awkward and airy satire of the art world, diving deep into the pretensions, prejudices and insecurities of this self-absorbed uh, museum uh, curator. And it has all of the dynamics that Sol just mentioned. And on sixth place, uh, it's a film I'm really sorry I couldn't include in my top five, which is uh, Mrs. Fang which is this unnerving, unpleasant, claustrophobic and just emotionally challenging documentary by Bing Wang, where we'd simply watch Mrs. Fang, an older woman who can no longer speak or move, just slowly slipping away. The family is around her, discussing her death, drinking and even partying by her bedside. And just all of this with the knowledge that this woman is actually alive and conscious. We are left studying your eyes, looking for any kind of emotion. It's just so incredibly uh, painful in these moments when the camera actually focuses on her face. It just lingers there and, and it genuinely feels earned. So this is the film I would love to discuss uh, more with you, but I had to make some <laughs> cuts. And with that, we're actually on to Clem's fifth favorite uh, film of 2017. So just uh, take it away, Clem. Okay, so at uh, number five, I have the movie Good Time by the Safdie Brothers. The film is about the story of uh, two brothers, one played by Robert Pattinson and uh, his brother who has a mental handicap. The film focuses on Robert Pattinson's character struggling to go through one night as he tried to uh, get his uh, brother out of trouble. The brother that uh, he got in uh, trouble when they robbed a bank and it went uh, wrong. And we follow him through a night, meeting a different gallery of uh, characters, trying to make the, the best out of a uh, situation as best as he can often with uh, disastrous results for him and uh, for those around him. The main strength of the film, as uh, Sol briefly mentioned it, is the visuals, the neon-drenched visuals throughout uh, the night, where he is um, indoors or outdoors. You, can, you see him in uh, apartments, you see him um, outside in a different location, and there is always this uh, dark red uh, neon atmosphere that um, really gives the film a great look. As I said, the main character is played by Robert Pattinson, who does a pretty good job as well, showing that uh, well, he was um, able to, uh, to distance himself from the Twilight movies he made uh, a decade ago, and uh, by Playing on this film and a few other films that have absolutely nothing to do with uh, playing a vampire as he did 
uh, earlier on, he shows in, in this film that uh, well, he can act and uh, yeah, it's hard to uh, talk about it too much without spoiling. But um, I will um, add that it's one of those films that just uh, grabbed me from the, from the beginning and uh, just kept me hooked from beginning to end. So yeah, that's my uh, number five. I absolutely love Good Time, as you can probably guess, because I had it in my top 10. I agree with everything that Clemens said about it, especially Robert Patterson's performance. And it's a really great performance because it's a role that constantly requires him to manipulate, convince and beguile others around him. So he's always playing an extra character beyond the character that he is as he tries to get his brother into safety. In terms of the visuals and the audio of the film, I don't know if Clem mentioned the Tangerine Dream style pulsating score, but the music is just as you know effective for me as the visuals with it. But the main takeaway that I took of it after watching it is I described it as being a more serious after hours as directed by Nicholas Winding Rafen. And it's just amazing to look at all the neon in there, like Clem said, almost every single shot there has got some neon in there. So the aesthetics are just amazing. And it just works really well to create this powerful tale of these brothers who sort of get pushed down this rabbit hole after their plans. Robber Bank doesn't quite go to plan. And I remember when I was discussing the after hours stuff on the ICM forum afterwards, I said, it's just amazing how similar it is. And apparently it's not an accident because one of the posters for the film, which Carmel, one of our users on the forum showed me, is actually styled on the after hours poster. So it's a bit of like a love letter, I guess, to the Martin Scorsese film also. And after hours is actually my favorite Scorsese film. So yeah, I just absolutely love Good Time. Yeah, I was thinking about After Hours after a good time too, and it, it works so well. Patterson is absolutely incredible, and it, it, the intensity of it, and, and just how unlikable, yet interesting and intriguing Patterson manages to make his character. It's unlike most, uh, let's say, relatively mainstream films out there. I, I think your description is spot on. I enjoyed the aesthetic of Good Time, but I admit I've, I found it a bit exhausting, uh, which I guess is a feature, not a bug, but... I, I guess I couldn't hold on to it. I, I didn't find Pattinson, he wasn't bad, but uh, I, I suppose I didn't quite empathize with his character enough. I like the film best when it's slowed down a bit with that scene with the girl where he's staying at the girl's house. Talia Webster is the actress. So that's my favorite scene in the film. But yeah, I had a bit of trouble really, really emotionally engaging with it, I suppose. I've got a question for you, Matthew, if you don't mind. So you said you found Good Time really exhausting. I actually had the same reaction with Uncut Gems, and I can't remember offhand if you participated in the podcast where we discussed Uncut Gems, but I definitely was, uh, I wasn't quite against it, but I definitely thought it powered a lot against Good Time, and I just found it, yeah, absolutely exhausting at the end of it, whereas Good Time, I was enthralled right until the end. Yeah, Uncut Gems is definitely exhausting, but I do I do like that film. That's why I highlight the kind of emotional engagement. I think... Um, the structure of, of Uncut Gems is something for some reason I, I responded more positively to. Maybe I just, Adam Sandler is, is, was better suited for me uh, for this kind of role than Pattinson. I don't, I don't know, but yeah, I did like Uncut Gems, but it's definitely the same. Yeah, definitely even more exhausting possibly. So Mathieu, what's your number five of the year? My number five is uh, Ni Juge Ni Soumise, or So Help Me God. 
a documentary by Belgian filmmakers Yves Inan and Jean Libon, the latter of whom is mostly known for a cult docu-series from the 90s called Striptease, which explored the underbelly of Belgian society in a humorous but also sometimes very dark manner, showing us taboo and uncomfortable things that no one else would, at least not on TV. And this documentary is very much in that vein. What it adds, though, is a focus through its main character. We are following a judge in Brussels who has a very peculiar personality. She's a bit of an oddball, but a very endearing one. Uh, she's both passionate towards the people who come before her, but also capable of recognizing the absurdity in some situations and like cutting right to the chase. And so she's perfect for this, this approach, this docu-series, which always verged on feeling exploitative. But this, to me, avoided that trouble, thanks to that focus on this judge who brings her warmth and humanity and humor to all of these situations. It makes us feel directly involved rather than passively observing these sometimes strange and wacky people. And it's all very endearing and often funny, again, exploring some of those taboos like the lives of sex workers with light touch before the film takes a real turn for something much, much darker. And that's what I find great in this film, the unlikely balance of tones, that capacity to look at all the complexity of society and finding ways to show both the absurdist and funny aspects of it, as well as the grim and the horrifying. Yeah, so help me, Rodis. Uh, definitely a film I've really enjoyed watching. And uh, as you say, the judge has just incredible charisma there. I mean, she's uh, delightful in many ways. So I, I do have a bit split opinion on it. I'm just not sure how professional she's actually coming across because she is actually mocking uh, many of the people coming uh, into her office. A little bit like uh, a slightly more uh, lovable Judge Judy in a way, which is just uh, shooting off at every single person <laughs> with, uh, <laughs> yeah, with, with her off-the-cut, semi-politically correct remarks, which, which are uh, funny and, and it strikes you as odd that you know, we see her driving around in her you know, cute little car and she has this like bubbly persona. It's a really nice watch. It has lots of great exchanges. I think some elements of it are lighter. They mix in this criminal case, which they don't really complete. And it feels like it might have been shot over a relatively short period of time and assembled together. It is not necessarily that uh, cinematic, though some parts of it do feel that cinematic. And I think it's really just carried by her personality. Uh, another thing that made me a little bit on edge with it is that I'm not sure how much everyone's actually acting uh, for the camera and how much is semi-fake. It was one of those things I was thinking throughout as well, but it's an absolutely delightful uh, film I, I would recommend to pretty much anyone who enjoys this type of documentary. Yeah, absolutely. It was a fun documentary to watch. I didn't know those who made it were the one who made the striptease back in the 90s, but uh, it doesn't uh, doesn't really surprise me. Also, I, I'm not, uh, I haven't seen... Uh, many uh, striptease uh, episodes i uh, noticed that it was about the same this uh, way of showing things without really uh, commenting on them from, from what i remember as uh, as was said before the judge has uh, an eccentric personality let's say i guess it's a way for her to also cope with uh, the hard uh, things she's uh, dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis and um, yeah i also agree with you with you, Mathieu, this uh, capacity that uh, the film has to go from uh, minor crimes, let's say, to uh, bigger cases that uh, include uh, things that happen 10 or 15 um, 
years ago, it was quite uh, quite something. I also wondered if you would uh, explain the, the the play on word on the French title. Uh, I guess you didn't because you wanted to keep uh, keep it family friendly. But yeah, so, uh, I wonder if you would do it. And uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I guess the title is actually. I mean, it's funny. It's Nijuni Sumi. It's a plain word on a, on a feminist slogan from the 70s, I think, uh, which was uh, it means neither a whore nor a submissive. And so this title means neither a judge nor a submissive. But I don't know. It's a funny title, but I don't know that it makes that much sense with the film. I mean, it's, it's just kind of a funny play on words. And just to get back on, on something Chris said, yeah, I didn't find myself wondering too much about the reality. Anytime there's a camera, people might be you know, overplaying things. But I guess familiarity with the docu-series means that you, you see there are really weird people who just don't care about being weird. Uh, so I guess I took it for granted, but yeah, I don't, I don't know. So Saul, what's uh, your fifth favorite film of 2017? So I really don't like Guy Madden. I've seen a few of his films and shorts over the years, and I've never managed to connect with them. So... It's much to my surprise that the film which I'm putting in as fifth for this podcast is actually a film by Guy Madden. It's a film called The Green Fog, and just some history about it. It was commissioned by the San Francisco Film Society for the 60th anniversary of the San Francisco International Film Festival. And I asked Guy Madden to do it, as well as the Johnson brothers who worked with him on The Forbidden Room. And knowing that, going down and sitting down and watching it, I watched the film with a lot of trepidation. The thing which intrigued me about it is that, from what I had read, it was a tribute to Vertigo. And I absolutely love Vertigo. It's my favorite Hitchcock film. I've seen it seven or eight times. So that intrigued me and made me decide, well, maybe I will give the film a go. What I didn't realize, though, is that the film isn't just a tribute to Vertigo. It's actually pretty much a remake of Vertigo. And what they've done is they've taken all this footage from various films that have been shot in San Francisco over the years, so dating back all the way to the 1940s up until more recent films, and they've spliced different scenes together and effectively have recreated the story of Vertigo. The first, I think, 15 minutes of it from memory is without any dialogue. So when the dialogue where the people are about to speak, uh, Madden cuts that part out. But then as the film progresses along, we actually see bits of dialogue. As per the title, there is some green frog effects used to sort of give it a little bit of extra atmosphere, I guess, maybe. But what's really interesting is there's so many pivotal scenes from Vertigo that you just see superbly recreated just by using similar shots from other films and certain reaction shots. There's all these clips from films with uh, Chuck Norris in it, and he gives an amazing performance, or at least in The Green Fog, the way it's edited together with all the sorrow and regret he seems to have. It's a performance that's almost as good as James Stewart's in the original, but it's just a matter of the way the material was spliced together. And look, it does get a bit confusing, but the more you watch, the more you get used to things changing between color and black and white. And the whole way the bell tower scene at the end is recreated is just absolutely mind-blowing. So I didn't totally love The Green Fog. I did have some minor problems with it, but it's a film that's just, ever since I watched it, it's a film that's constantly been in the back of my mind, shaping my thoughts, and I just can't get the film out of my head. So I decided, look, I do need to talk about it for this podcast. And I hope other people who are fans of Vertigo would check it out. 
even if they're not fans of Guy Madden, because I'm not a Madden fan and I absolutely loved it. <laughs> yes, I guess that is the the trade-off here because I am a Madden fan, a really big Madden fan, and this is probably my least favorite uh, feature work he's ever done. And I, I think it does speak to just how different it is from everything else. I mean, his traditional style of you know creating this uh, never world using uh, conventions of you know silent and early sound cinema is just not. Here, this is, like you said, a compilation of scenes all around San Francisco to recreate Vertigo. It's good, it's a pleasant viewing, uh, but it just feels so light uh, from Madden and just this green fog effect just uh, peering in there. I, I just don't see the whole purpose of this. It didn't really speak to me in any way. It's, it's, it just struck me as a relatively cute experiment and that's it. The Green Fog is a film I liked. I found it extremely impressive to be able to take parts of films from here and there to just manage to recreate the Vertigo story. I thought that was quite uh, an impressive achievement. I'm wondering something uh, since uh, you guys, Chris and uh, Saul, have different opinions on Madden, to say the least. The thing with uh, The Green Fog is that it doesn't feature any material actually from Madin. Madin didn't uh, direct any of the films that uh, were um, used for the movie. So I guess that's probably why I have... Um, personally, I have trouble calling it a Guy Madden film. He obviously made it, but uh, I don't know. He just took parts and uh, you know pieces of others' work to create something. Just like... Um, Another film that was released a few few years back called uh, Final Film. I think it's also worth pointing out that uh, Madden did not direct this uh, alone, just as with his previous film, Evan Johnson and uh, and Colin Johnson, two brothers, uh, are co-directing. And unlike the previous film, they are actually credited uh, first. So you can also wonder how much uh, of the film is uh, Madden's. Well, whatever the case may be, it is an editing job, not a directing job, but still, you know, there is still obviously someone making it. I, I had a bit of a weird experience with The Green Frog because I like to know the least about films before watching them. And in this case, it might have been a disservice because so obviously I got that it was a bunch of films filmed in San Francisco. And then about 10 minutes in, I went, weird, we haven't seen any images from actual Vertigo. And then I went, oh, there are a lot of scenes that look a lot like scenes from Vertigo. That's weird. But I don't think I exactly put it together, especially because then we get the, the Catatonia part with Chuck Norris, which I agree, Saul, great performance by Chuck Norris. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely the best part of the film for me. But yeah, so I was more, I was kind of trying to find the plot that was not Vertigo in there. So with the Green Fog, I thought, oh yeah, the Green Fog is making people mute because you have all of these dialogue scenes where... You know, uh, it cuts before they speak every time, uh, which is kind of funny. Uh, so, yeah, I had trouble with the film just, I think, because I didn't quite recognize what it was. I recognized all of the Vertigo homages, but I thought he was doing maybe something else. So, yeah, it, it's an interesting experiment. Not one that entirely worked for me, but uh, maybe I can revisit it one day after I watched Vertigo, which is a film I absolutely love. Yeah, it's uh, definitely quite different what Guy Madden's doing there and the Johnson brothers. I didn't like 
The Forbidden Room, which is the other film that Madden did with the uh, Johnson brothers. So I don't know if it's a matter of the Johnsons having extra input because I absolutely hate The Forbidden Room. So I'm not sure. In terms of whether it's directing or editing, I think there is some directing in there. I mean, yes, they need to edit all the footage together, but it's edited together with a specific purpose in mind. And there's actually a narrative beyond it and films that do that and sort of like take different clips from other films I just think are incredibly interesting uh the director of the artist did one in the 90s called the class americana but uh he did that with all different clips from films from like the 60s and 70s and managed to create a narrative out of it by splicing it together and putting some voiceover on and of course woody allen did that with what's up tiger lily and recorded different voiceover to make his own film but just the whole idea of taking footage and being able to create something with it, even if you haven't shot it, is just something which is so dynamic. There's a great director called Craig Baldwin, made a couple of films. One of them's called Tribulation 99, Alien Anomalies Under America, and the other one's called Spectres of the Spectrum. And they tell like complete stories just using various found footage and splicing it together. And I guess what I found even more dynamic with The Green Fog is that it's not just splicing together all this footage to create a story, but to retell a story that most of us as hardcore cinephiles know very well. So it's like seeing like one of my favorite dreams or whatever unfold again in different eyes. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, can, I know it's not for everyone. And I think, yeah, if you go into it knowing nothing about it, would probably like it even less. I guess I was fortunate enough to know that it was about Vertigo before going in. I just didn't know it was a remake of it. I was just totally surprised and knocked off my feet by it. And I thought, well, this is just a film that I have to uh, put forward and try and get some more people converted into watching. To add to that, uh, La Casa American, yeah, that's, uh, it's a cult favorite in France and a film that I really like. I think generally this technique uh, lends itself to comedy particularly well. And I think that's why the parts I liked the most in The Green Fog were, again, the Chuck Norris parts and the kind of awkward, absurdist comedy of people getting interrupted all the time, kind of a Buñuel feel to it almost. Um, one thing I'd also mention for people who like this kind of thing is there's a, a YouTube channel called Blow Up. And it's a French thing, but they have a, a playlist called Recut, which is exactly this, recutting things from different films and kind of telling small stories. Uh, it's not as ambitious as The Green Fog, but, uh, you know, it, it could be of interest. And I'll just throw in defense for people who re-edit films, because this is a standard part of uh, documentary filmmaking and essay filmmaking as well. And you can exercise a great degree of artistic control uh, with that. I mean, just look at the films of uh, Adam Curtis, for instance, and several documentaries throughout the ages. So I, I think that you can still definitely call someone a director for finding interesting and exciting new ways to reuse old uh, material. To move it on to uh, my uh, number five, we have The Killing of a Sacred Deer by Yorgos Lantimos, which is everything you can expect from a Lantimos film, especially at this point in time. I mean, it's cold, clinical, brutal, and of course, unnervingly stylized. The acting is cold and deadpan. The bleak, almost real humor we know from Dogtooth and the Lobster is here. Um, but fittingly, as we see a lot of hospital and clinical work, it is far more clinical in its darkness. 
um, not to mention far more restrained. It, it creeps under your skin with its warped logic and takes it to unyieldingly dark and uncomfortable places as just this family is taken to the depths of self-preservation and muted uh, depravity. It, it, it's certainly not for everyone, uh, but uh, the, the niche is quite clear. And I think that if you're in the in this niche who likes these cold, brutal, dark, semi-surrealist films, w- which I am, uh, it, it's a surefire hit. Yeah, I also was very impressed with The Killing of a Sacred Deer. Like Chris said, uh, it's very much a Lanthimos film. There's no mistaking it. It's an extremely atmospheric film. There's like a whole lot of a lingering sense of dread in the air, uh, especially because it's so unclear exactly what is going on. There's a great industrial-like sound effects, uh, lots of angular photography, some overhead shots looking, you know, straight down as some of the characters faint without giving away too much of it. But, yeah, the whole film just circles around this father who has to make a decision that no man should ever have to make and there's a few hows and whys that go a little bit unanswered but just the whole tense relationship between colin farrell and barry keegan as the um teenage boy who he connects with shall we say is just handled really well very dynamite performances and a film that lingered in my mind for several days after i watched it I like that you make it sound like a, a great connection between a man and a teenage boy. Yeah, that's <laughs> fascinating when you see the film. Uh, once again, going to be a, a dissenting voice here. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, it's the only Lantimos film I don't like. Um, I think it's. I think the, the the way he directs his actors, it works very well in something like The Lobster, but it doesn't work so well for me in this. Maybe because I don't see the comedy in it. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if it's supposed to be there, but at least I don't see it. And I find that the monotone way uh, of, of directing his actors is kind of hurts the inherent tragedy here. I think the only of his actors who did, does really well with it here is Nicole Kidman. I, yeah, Barry Keegan, everyone loved his performance. I don't really, I, I guess I don't really get it. Um, and I don't love also the way he kind of, name drops the Iphigenia myth, which is what this is kind of based on. It kind of feels like, oh, look at me, I'm uh, retelling a Greek myth. Uh, isn't kind of as if, as if it legitimizes the film. And maybe that's me just putting intent into Lentimos's words, but, or his film. But anyway, yeah, I, I didn't really respond to this. It's, I, I like the first, act, I like the beginning of it. I, I actually like the way he sets up the mood. It's very foreboding. But then the film kind of went on and kind of lost me. I might just respond to the uh, comedy in The Killing of a Sacred Deer. Uh, I don't want to get into too much spoilerish territory, but there is definitely one part in there where I laughed out loud, where I didn't think I should have because it's such a grim tale. And I'm not going to reveal too much, but there's a part where basically Colin Farrell is spinning around in his living room towards the end and i'm not going to say why exactly but just the whole way it's set up it is very comical but it's an unusual sort of comedy angle to have in there because it is such a grim tale i'd probably agree that it's um not very comedy based compared to the favorite or dog tooth or um the lobster it's definitely not a laugh out loud funny film 
And I'd say it's, yeah, probably even a very grim film, but I do think Latsimov does see some comedy in there still. Um, the Killing of a Sacred Deer is a film I really liked as well. It's um, a very lengthy most films, as, uh, as you guys said, which is a, a real tribute to his talent to have been able to uh, create his own uh, visual identity like, uh, like this in, uh, a few, in just a few films. It's a film that is extremely cold, as was mentioned in the, the visuals and also in the performances of uh, the different uh, characters. The music is uh, extremely eerie, I guess, which uh, makes the films even more uh, tense and uh, very strange and uh, almost oppressive atmosphere, I would say. The camera angles also that were uh, choose are quite unusual, I would say. I mean, w- when I was w- when I was watching the film, I uh, okay, I, I've only seen one film of it, but I was thinking of uh, Roy Anderson, a uh, song from the second floor. And in Roy Anderson films, the, the camera were, was very uh, static throughout the different shots. Here we have um, the, some static um, shots, but we also have uh, travel. The camera is just following the, the actors around. And usually when, when the camera do it, it um, is at uh, actors' height, let's, let's say. And in these cases, well, sometimes the camera was following the actors, but also sometimes it was uh, filming from, uh, from the floor or from down, which um, makes it even uh, more uh, strange in a way, uh, I would say, yeah, because it's uh, quite uh, unusual in the uh, in this uh, type of um, film to, to film from uh, quite close sometimes and yet managing to keep a distance from uh, the character and uh, the general extremely cold and dark atmosphere the film manages to uh, create. Yeah, I can definitely see uh, the issue you're bringing up that the comedy is not as self-evident as uh, Lantimos's previous films. It is more restrained. But, uh, you know, just the extreme awkwardness uh, the characters deliver, their, their lines, and, and their lines themselves, and, you know, this, this extreme banality and, and, and b- bizarreness. Uh, it, it's, it's darkly humorous, but it, it's more under the surface, and it, it's equally eerie at, at all times. I think none of you mentioned the overpowering uh, soundtrack, either filled with uh, classical mu- music, um, which uh, may be both a strength and a weakness uh, in, in some ways, but it's... Uh, but yeah, when I was talking about how clinical it is, it's also about how detached it is uh, from all of uh, from everything that's happening and shooting, you know, from the roof and seeing them, you know, small on the floor or just taking that degree of um, separation from the emotions and not really humanizing them to the way that you another approach could have done. I think that works really well in making it, uh, like I said, airy and uh, unnerving. It, it could certainly be handled in a completely different way with far more realism and emotion and maybe also had a really strong impact on me. But I think that just the way Lantimos did it in this like horror-esque dark comedy style, uh, that really got under my skin and it worked incredibly well for me. And with that, all of our number fives 
are out there. So let's continue to our four favorite films of uh, 2017, starting once again with Clem. Okay, so at uh, number four, I have a French film, Les Bons et les Cadavres, or also known by its English title, Let the Corpses Tan. It's a film that was uh, directed by Helen Cate and uh, Bruno Forzani. Well, since my number five film was about uh, ice that gone wrong, this time it's another ice film, but this time the ice actually goes right. The film follows gangsters who just stole uh, from a bank truck, which are uh, now hiding at a alcoholic writer's uh, place by the, the sea in a very um, rural, let's say, um, house. And uh, later on in the film, rather quickly in the film, the police start investigating for something else, for the disappearance of uh, two women and uh, children. They eventually come to the house and then most of the film will be focusing on this uh, kind of uh, duel that uh, the police and the gangsters will be having. So I think the main uh, strength of the films is uh, firstly the editing. The editing is uh, quite uh, fast paced in uh, a lot of um, in a lot of cases that it really just uh, keeps going on and on at um, extremely fast. While there are some other parts that are a bit slower, but uh, it usually doesn't uh, doesn't really last for too long. It also uses uh, not exactly flashbacks, but it also comes back very often to um, a few minutes earlier in the, the day, let's say, because we have different characters that eventually split to hide in, uh, well, pretty much everywhere they can. And the film goes back in time for a few minutes very often to, um, well, showcase what uh, the different characters are uh, doing. So I thought that was, that was quite... Uh, Quite interesting to see because uh, you know what you can, you know what happened, you can hear what happened, but you don't really know what really, uh, well, what really happened and who did it. And uh, by showing the different characters after, uh, well, one after one, it uh, allows the story to just um, slowly um, unfold in front of us. Another extremely uh, interesting thing is also the, the visual uh, like in good time well it's not a neon like in good time but uh, the aesthetics is also quite uh, reddish at um, at a lot of points there are uh, a lot of um, shots of them smoking cigarettes and having their faces illuminated with uh, red yellow and uh, stuff like that which is uh, quite uh, nice to 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 look at. I think overall it uh, takes a lot from uh, exploitation, Western. I was reminded a lot of, uh, I don't know, just in the, the setting and the story and the way the film is made. It just uh, reminded me of uh, something someone, an exploitation uh, film director could have uh, could have made. Yeah, I think overall it's a uh, different uh, film, especially in this uh, day and ages that uh, really should be seen by uh, more people. Uh, yeah, this is a film that's all about the location and the style. So the location, you mentioned it, it's a remote thing, but it's this ruin in Corsica, and it's just, uh, you, you can see how Katia and Forzani found this place, 
And I, I, my theory is that the film is just them finding this place and figuring out a movie to shoot in it because it's just so inherently cinematic and a great location and almost all of the film is in it, uh, this kind of old ruin. And the style, you mentioned the editing, and that's, of course, a huge part of it. But another part of it is kind of, is how fetishistic it is, right? It's all inserts and extreme close-ups, kind of like Sergio Leone style, uh, close-ups on faces. And also the, the sound design, right? Um, there's the, so- the sound of leather on skin is basically a character in this film. And I think all of those stylistic elements are very cool. I do. It, it's another case of a film being just slightly too frenetic for me, but... I definitely appreciate this kind of Sergio Leone on steroids uh, style. Uh, yeah, they're definitely a unique film and, and something that I did enjoy. Yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed that The Corpse is Tan. I went to it as a fan of the director's previous films, Amer and The Strange Color of Your Body's Tears. And similar to those two, it's a, a very stylish film, but less horror-based than those ones were. Those ones have a real horror slant to it. Whereas this one, like Clem said, it's more of a Western. And with the whole idea of the um, stolen stash of gold, the film that it reminded me of the most was The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. So if you wanted to see The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, as directed by the directors of The Strange Colour of Your Body's Tears, this might be the perfect film for you. But, yeah, no, I absolutely loved it. It was so stylish, as the others have mentioned already, the rapid-fire cuts, the lighting in there, the angular photography. It has a real surreal nightmare flavour to it. And I think from memory there's uh, bits of dreams and fantasies in there also, so it's not just all straightforward. But, yeah, very powerful. Uh, Some of the fetish stuff which uh, Matthew mentioned is definitely in there. I had no idea before going into the film what exactly the poster for the film represents, but it does actually represent something which could be considered a sexual fetish. So that's quite interesting, but I'm not going to spoil it for people who haven't seen the film yet. Uh, Just to add to that, I I did think of that when I said fetishistic, but it's also maybe it's not the same in English, but fetishistic is also just kind of being obsessed with objects. Uh, there's definitely a sexual element as well. But I, I also mean the, the way the film is, is, is obsessed with, with objects and a lot of insert shots. Uh, that, that's where the word comes from, essentially. It used to be about uh, uh, a focus on objects and then the word kind of took on a slightly different uh, meaning. It's definitely both meanings in this case, to be clear. Yeah. So, Mathieu, what's uh, your fourth favorite film of 2017? Oh, yeah. My, my number four is going to go very quick because we'll talk about it later. It's higher on someone else's list, and that's The Death of Stalin. Very good. And uh, Saul, then, what's your fourth favorite? So, the film that I've selected for my fourth favorite for this podcast is a thriller from Thailand. It's called Bad Genius. What's it about? It's about a lonely high school student and she's really good at schoolwork. She doesn't have very many friends. She feels sorry for one of her peers, so she helps her peer to cheat. And after she does that, she ends up becoming roped into a wider scale exam cheating scheme. And the film for me worked on a whole lot of different levels. So it was partially about how the lonely people can be easily manipulated. 
I thought the lead actress and the supporting actress were both uh, great in it. I'm not going to say their names because I'd butcher them, but um, just the relationship between them were really interesting, and you aren't sure if the one student's only interested in her friendship to help her cheer, whether she just really wants to be a friend or not. On the other hand, I thought the film was also about standardised testing because the whole thing is about multiple choice out to test. And the film sort of looks at the way that they find to cheat and sort of give out these A, B, C, D answers so that other students are able to do it. And then they find some really interesting sort of musical and tapping ways to communicate it. So for me, it's about also about being against standardised testing, which as a teacher... Uh, I'm, uh, I object to also the whole multiple choice thing. doesn't really test what you know and what you don't know. And I thought on yet another level, the film was also about the teens themselves and their warped view on life, that cheating is the way to succeed in education. So I thought there were a whole lot of different interesting things going on in there. But look, above all, it just worked really well for me as a now-biting thriller. Constantly we're in suspense about whether or not we're going to get caught. There's an amazing part where they end up going to another location, don't want to say too much, and you know they're trying to like hide the answers and communication tools. You don't know if they're going to be caught or not. And the whole thing did remind me a bit of an Ocean's Eleven film, and I think it's been compared to that as before. But, yeah, just very enthralling film. It does get a bit weak towards the end. I don't really like the sentiment away that it turns, but generally I was enthralled throughout. Yeah, Bad Genius, as one says, is a really, really fun and exciting uh, watch. And I think, uh, like so many other films in a similar vein, I mean, the, uh, the excitement here is just seeing how uh, they do it and just watching how the film essentially uses suspense mechanism to show the workings of a brilliant mind and, uh, and building up the scheme and building up the excitement and anticipation of, of if it will work or, or if it won't. Yeah, I think it's not really doesn't really dive that deep into it. It's like the Queen's Gambit a little bit, which you know popularized chess and just showed the excitement of chess without really diving that deep uh, deep into it. You have these techniques of just making cheating that exciting, <laughs> and just the ways of doing that, and these little uh, these little ideas that uh, she comes up with and ties everything together, and it's. It's really suspenseful. It's really funny. It has uh, lots of twists in there. It's uh, t- it's jumping back and forth between various different things. Everything is not exactly as it would appear either. So and and you have this large uh, fun character gallery with, with a lot of different uh, motivations. Uh, so yeah, it's it's a twisty, fast-paced, fun uh, thriller that I think should be far more popular, really. It's the kind of things that I can see work for essentially every uh, single demographic. Yeah, I definitely agree with that last part. It's something that really is quite accessible. Uh, another thing that uses fast edits uh, to to a fairly uh, good effect, I basically agree with what you guys said. It's it's a fun, it's a fun thriller. Um, I, I was a little let down by the ending, which tries to make it into a moralistic story, and that doesn't really work. But that doesn't take away from the the thriller aspects, which are well done and ingenious and often clever. I did, I did at one point pause the film, sorry, Tom, uh, to check if that's really how the SATs work. And yeah, it's, it, it, it does. You could cheat that way. <laughs> that's a, it could be a manual for someone. <laughs>
<laughs> yeah, watch out, I guess. Uh, and yes, I think what you pinpoint there of the ending is is Miley's favorite part too, and the the, the thing that perhaps stopped it from being a great film for me, but it's a really good film. And it's, uh, it is light, easy and accessible, but it works really well. It's exciting throughout. So yeah, definitely recommend it. Hmm. I'm really uh, pleased to hear that you guys like Bad Genius because yeah, it's a film that I am like Chris said, I'm surprised it's not better known. I think it really would appeal to worldwide markets because it's like so well done as a thriller and like sort of an exciting one and making cheating so exciting so yeah i hope it does get a bit more exposure sometime into the future and something which i will mention though is i haven't actually seen the queen's gambit but the comparison has now piqued my interest so yeah let's see if Saul loves the uh, queen's gambit and on that uh, that note we can go on to my number four which uh which is uh western which just hits you with uh, the bare-boned minimalism of uh, Valeska Griesebach. Uh, and what is so striking here is the way she manages to shoot masculinity, in particular hyper-masculinity or even this downright toxic masculinity in a way that captures incredible vulnerability. Uh, everything here is infused with a sense of powerlessness and, and sadness. It, it's frankly jarring. Uh, we have all seen films that you know either revel in this behavior and, and, and characteristics, or you know shows it as dangerous, scary, uh, and unnerving. But but this is not quite that film. Uh, and to make it even stronger, it also dives into national chauvinism uh, and communication. Even uh, some German workers essentially stranded in Bulgaria forge complicated relationships with the. Uh, the locals around them and uh, this is enhanced further by this this powerful central performance uh, and uh, the attempts at communication uh, com communication without words and, and just relationships that are for it's like i said really bare bone you, you get trapped in this uh, very sensory experience which is something i absolutely love but this this vulnerability this weakness uh, this softness that the, in these characters, especially our lead Meinhardt, which the, which the film manages to find, it's, it's just absolutely spellbinding for me. <laughs> oh dear. Okay, so it looks like I'm the only co-host tonight who's also seen Western, and unfortunately I didn't like it anywhere near as much as Chris did. I didn't hate the film, so I liked it more than Transit, which is another Berlinish school film, which didn't really do much for me, which we discussed in the 2018 podcast. Uh, Western, look, it has got a really great performances by uh, great performances, especially the lead actor, Meinhard Newman. I thought he had a really great, quiet intensity with him. But the film for me didn't really do much. I constantly had this sense that there was this tension that was about to erupt, but then nothing significant ever seemed to really happen, except for something with the horse, which is probably best left unspoiled. But otherwise, it's sort of like, you know, is this fight going to break out? Are the villagers going to turn against them? Is the person he tells off harassing that girl going to get into a fight with him? Is this going to happen? Is this going to happen? And nothing actually really goes anywhere. And 
I mean, uh, probably the clincher for me is there's a scene where they're sitting around a bonfire and they start braiding each other's hair. And I'm just like, wow, these guys are just really bored and they've got nothing to do. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Unfortunately, Chris, it's the one image that's going to stay with me from the film. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, look, um, I I like the title West, and it is kind of interesting how there are some parallels with there because, you know, he likes the um, horse, he rides into a new town. He sort of saves this girl from being harassed and being a little bit heroic. But, you know, for a film uh, running for a whole feature length, um, yeah, I don't know. It's just, I mean, the characters are really bored and that's sort of like the, I guess, the whole raison d'etre of the film is depicting this boredom. But I didn't feel the director managed to make their boredom too exciting. Fair enough. I think that this tension you're talking about, which builds up and up and up uh, with all of these different uh, loose threads and again, all of this vulnerability tied in there as well, it is part of what makes it uh, so spellbinding and and even exciting for me uh, personally. But uh, I can definitely see why it would not work for everyone. Uh, so, as no one else has seen it, let's just uh, jump right to our uh, third favorite films of uh, 2017, uh, starting once again with Clan. Okay, so, um, my personal number three is a French film called Jeannette, L'Enfance de Jeanne d'Arc. It's about Joan of Arc, to be more precise, her childhood in a poor shepherd village in France. The movie is an ad- um, adaptation, actually, of a book by a French author called Charles Peggy, who wrote it in, uh, well, released it in uh, 1910, so more than a, a century ago. I think it's uh, interesting to notice that um, the director uses the same, uh, the exact same text that the book uh, had. Uh, I, I say it's interesting because the film is made in a peculiar way, let's say. It, uh, on the one end, it features text that is well, quite well um, written, but at the same time, it uh, featured the music of the French artist uh, Igor, who, if you don't know, is uh, an artist that has been uh, in the scene for about uh, 15 years, I would say, something like that that uh, mixes um, a lot of different uh, style of uh, music going from electronic to classical music to uh, deaf uh, deaf black metal type of uh, music here it features his electronic i would say material even though it has some uh, blast beats uh, here and there and the contrast between the two is extremely interesting to see and very peculiar very unique it works extremely well I think, and it gives a certain taste to the film that uh, has probably never been uh, done before, especially on uh, Joan of Arc, who, uh, I mean, we, we, all, we, have, uh, we all have seen uh, her in uh, other films, whether it is uh, the Dreyer film or uh, maybe the one that uh, Luc Besson did or the one that Rivette did. And um, it's never had this uh, almost comic feel to it when you when you look at it because there is this uh, contrast between well the subject that is extremely uh, classic in a way let, let's say and on the other end the music that is uh, 
completely all over the place. Even though it's not his most uh, weird uh, material, it's um, still it's still up there. And uh, yeah, I, th- I found it fascinating to see two words uh, collide. One very ancient, let's say, in the way they speak and the way they dress and the way they are, and this very modern um, type of uh, music. Uh, I haven't seen the sequel yet. To I have to say, but I definitely have to uh, get down to to see it because uh, this whole film is definitely uh, an experience that uh, everyone should uh, should see at least once. Yeah, Jeanette is a very strange film. Uh, you mentioned the origin of it, the Peggy text, uh, but it should also be mentioned that Peggy was himself kind of referencing not something specific, but a medieval genre, which is called the medieval mystery. And that's not like the name of the rose. It's, it means something with um, that kind of has magical realism in it. And so the Jean d'Arc story kind of is good for that. And yeah, it's just a strange film. I mean, the, the choices are, are kind of insane. Um, and sometimes they, they're great. I think like when you have the nuns uh, kind of headbanging, that's just such a unique image. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. I mean, I mean, that's what kind of what we go to the cinema for, what to see something we haven't seen before, and I definitely <laughs> haven't seen that. Um, I, I do think the dialogue is very tough on, especially the the eight year old actresses, the, the children, uh, because it's very, it's both really, it's kind of a mix between really ornate and really naturalistic, and yeah, that's just a very tough balance to to strike for a child actor, and I don't think they manage it that well. I think. The film gets a lot better with the teenagers. Uh, I think the acting gets better and, and uh, it works. Yeah, it just works better. I'm quite, kind of, I'm quite curious to see the sequel that you mentioned for that reason. I also missed it. But yeah, it's a really unique film. I don't know that it entirely works, but it's, it's, to me, it's worth seeing just because it's so strange. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it's a bit like this. The net is an experience um, and it's a pretty daring film as well. I, I, I really respect a lot of the choices here. I think the nun dance in particular is, is a standout. Uh, and the fact that, you know, it, it merges in rap and uh, heavy metal and rock, rock etc., into this very sparse uh, environment. And, like, it, it's just the fact that it's so stripped down, like large portion of the film is just essentially shot in two, three, four locations, most of it out in nature. Like you, I think you get 20, 30, 40 minute scenes like in one area with long drawn out uh, music choices, very little elaborate setup. It, it, it's sparse, minimalistic, and then you have this kind of extremity on the other side. And, and some of the music is quite catchy. I didn't love it personally. I can see, re- I can really see why someone would, because there's so much uniqueness there, so much daringness. Uh, it, it's visually interesting. It's creatively interesting. So while it, it's uh, the, the, the jarring exercise uh, felt, li- felt a little bit short for me, I, I, I think it's something most people should definitely see uh, just to discover for themselves if this is something they would love, because it's, it is truly unique. Think of it that way. Do you want to see uh, a Jeanne d'Arc story told in the style of the Parapluie de Cherbourg with heavy metal? I mean, if yes, please do watch this film. Yeah, that's, that's a good description, Mathieu. I think I should mention I am a huge fan of uh, Igor, the guy who made the music. I knew his work before watching the film, which I, I guess really, um, really helped also uh, appreciate the, 
the film as a whole. I also agree with you, Chris. The style of the film is very minimalistic in its, uh, in its setting, in its um, characters, because we don't we don't see that many characters throughout uh, throughout the film. But um, I think it works. Um, I think it works extremely extremely well in this case. So, Mathieu, what's uh, your third favorite film of the year? Uh, so my number three is Call Me By Your Name to get back to something much more conventional. Uh, a film that I think is defined by sensuality in, in the fullest sense of the word. Obviously, this is a love story and one that certainly doesn't shy away from the sexual tension and release that entails. But I mean sensuality also in the way that Guadagnino uh, films this Italian summer. You can almost feel the sun on your skin and the breeze going through the trees. There's a basic escapist appeal to this film in the sense of being immersed in this very pleasant vacation. But of course, we also get this great romance with a slow buildup of tension as the characters circle each other in one shot, literally, uh, the release of that tension and then the consequences, which culminates in a melancholy but hopeful ending as we watch Timothée Chalamet process it all on that great final shot while the credits roll. It's a simple coming of age tale, really, but it gets everything right, especially in terms of the performances. With Chalamet's vulnerability, Army Hammer's charisma and confidence, and Michael Stuhlberg's compassion and understanding as, as the father. Add to that the Sufjan Stevens score and the 80s pop soundtrack, which are both used very well. And you've got a film that really captures that feeling of a youthful summer. Uh, there's something else that I specifically appreciate here, which is the multilingual aspect. Uh, this is mostly in English, but we also get some Italian and French. And that's just something I personally always enjoy when so many films erase language differences as much as they can. This even uses it purposefully in the scene between Chalamet and a girl he's rejecting, essentially by him choosing to use a language instead of another. And yeah, I just love that kind of, of thing. That's a small detail. Mostly this is just a, a pitch-perfect coming-of-age romance for me. I think what stood out a lot to me and what stood out to a lot of people is also the... Uh the way it captures and shoots the 80s and how it captures and shoots the summer and uh, creates this very visual and uh, sensual, like you said, experience of this. Um, I, I think it's a great film. I think it's filled with really strong uh, performances uh, and it's certainly uh, one of the biggest hits of the year and for, for good uh, reason. Um, it's not one of my very favorite films of the year. Uh, I do think that it it sometimes uh, drags on a little bit. I'm not sure how I feel about you know the very extended ending, but it's definitely a great film. Yeah, Call Me By Your Name is probably a good film. I'm going to say probably because I saw it under very high expectations when it came out at the, like, the very height of the Oscar buzz season. It's definitely very well acted. There's no doubt about that. Timothy Chalamet is excellent in the film. And up until I saw Good Time, it was actually my favorite male lead performance of 2017. I was really invested in his character and I thought he just knocked it out of the park. In terms of the rest of the film, uh, yeah, a little bit disappointing. I guess what I found the most disappointing about it is that you know, Matthew described that it's uh, obviously a love story, but I didn't really get that takeaway from it. 
part of the issue might have been that I had only a few weeks beforehand seen Carol, the uh, Todd Haynes film about a lesbian love affair. And with the Todd Haynes film, you get all these great subtle looks and stares and reaction shots to convey this like intimacy between the pair before they even kiss. And I didn't get any of that in Call Me By Your Name. Pretty much the Army Hammer, Timothy Chalamet stuff is left till the final quarter of the film. If I remember correctly, it's definitely in the second half of the film. Most of the film was about Chalamet working out, you know, when he should go all the way with his girlfriend. So I guess I was going into it, maybe expecting this amazing uh, gay love story, which it really wasn't to me. It was an interesting character piece, I guess, for the Charlemagne character. But as a romance of any sort, I thought there was only sort of like dropped in at the end. And I didn't think it was really built up enough to the fact that I really didn't really feel it was built up enough to the point of me really seeing them as absolute lovers. And when I started off my review of the film a few years ago, I wrote my first sentence titled after the most ridiculous line of dialogue in the movie, because <laughs> I just think that whole like dialogue exchange, call me by your name, is the worst part of the film. Yeah, I agree. I'm sorry, I hate to break it to you, but I just thought that I thought that part was like ridiculous and not not very romantic at all. But look, um, for Charlemagne's performance and for the way his character's built, I think yes, it's definitely something worth looking at. There is an unforgettable scene involving a peach, which I don't think anybody who's seen the film is ever going to forget. But um, was it one of the uh, ten or twenty best films of 2017? Um, I'd say no on that account. Yeah, that's interesting that you don't see the um, Army Hammer, well, the romance between the two, or at least the tension between the two as being that present in the film, because to me, it's it's really right there uh, to me. I, I kind of agree about the title. I, I, I guess it's ridiculous in the way that teenagers can be ridiculous, so I, I think it works within the film, but yeah, I, I guess it's maybe it works better in the novel also. Yeah, so just to be clear, I don't hate the film, and I, and I don't... I don't think the film's overrated or whatever because of the title. Uh, I'm not going to put too much emphasis on the title, but, um, yeah, I mean, Army Hammer says it, not Timothy Chalamet, so it's not a teenager saying in the first place. It was just a really weird, off-base, strange thing about a film that I wasn't quite enjoying as much as I was expecting in the first place. To then have that dropped into me, I was like, whoa, you know, people really think this is one of the 10 best films of the year. I'm not so sure. Oh, yeah, I misremembered it. But yeah, I, I definitely agree that it's not the best part, the best part of, the, of the film. So, Saul, what's uh, your third favourite? So, my third favourite film of 2017 is one of actually only two films that I've seen three times from the year. So, I saw this once in cinema and I've seen it uh, twice by myself on DVD. And I wasn't quite sure if the impact would be the same on the small screen because seeing in the theatre and considering that it was a comedy, I thought maybe that was a part of it. But no, it was equally hilarious for me the second, third time round. So the film is The Death of Stalin. It's a film from Amando Iannucci. I'm probably pronouncing it incorrectly. Uh, the director of In the Loop and recently did the David Copperfield film. What the film is about, it's about the madness that ensues when Stalin dies unexpectedly without a clear successor. So it's based on actual historical events, but Ian Usi takes a delightfully exaggerated view on it, emphasizing all the petty squabbling of Stalin's leadership team following his demise, 
as they all suck up to his daughter. They argue about where to stand during a funeral and generally just backstab each other uh, in a way of trying to get themselves up to the top. So the film is done with a whole mix of accents and 21st century dialogue. So it doesn't really capture the flavor of 1950s Russia, but it's just worked amazingly still as a look of the instability of power structures that are based on single individuals without a succession plan. And it's just so crazy. It's so exaggerated. And it's so funny. And even though the characters wouldn't talk anything like this in 50s Russia, you can just imagine some of the squabbling that would have gone on. Uh, one of the fun, one of the my most favorite lines of dialogue of the film is, I've had nightmares that make more sense than this, which sort of sums up the film really well for me. Yes, this is obviously also a film I loved since it was mine number four. It's, it's interesting you mentioned the language. It's something that I'm usually really picky about, uh, accurate language. And this film obviously just goes with it. And I think that works in part because it's a comedy. Uh, and that only highlights kind of the absurdity of many of these situations. And I think the choice to let everyone have their own accents is also a good one. Please don't do like comedy Russian accents. Uh, that's just better for everyone. And yeah, this is just a, a hilarious film. And I think I generally tend to prefer films that approach history through the, the lens of humor. Uh, I think often historical films can uh, have the make the mistake of kind of aggrandizing the, the moment in history they're talking about. In reality, I mean, life is often just simpler than that. I think this is just a great approach. And the death of Stalin is just ripe for absurdist comedy. And Iannucci really, really goes into it uh, with a lot of enthusiasm. And it, it works quite well. I think Steve Buscemi as Khrushchev is, is amazing. I mean, Steve Buscemi is one of my favorite actors and no exception here. Also, Simon Russell Beale as Beria. They're basically the, the two adversaries. Uh, he's he's great, and Jason Isaacs. I love. He has just a small role as um, as Zhukov, a military man, and yeah, just he walks into the film and owns it for five minutes. Yeah, it's just a, a great comedy that actually, even though it plays fast and loose with history and with the actual facts here, I think it describes kind of the the absurdity of totalitarianism quite well. Did any of you mention that it's actually based on a comic book slash graphic novel as well? Because I think that's. Uh... It, it, it does show a little bit, like you have Iannucci and, and the comic book sensibilities uh, just merged together into this mad mental image. And it's a very visual film as well, the way they introduce the characters and the way they play around with history in this very sarcastic way. It, it's, it's always visually striking and the comedy elements there are really great. It, it's... It really tracks in Iannucci's style as well, just all of this, you know, wobbling and bickering and pettiness, but also this higher level intrigue. I think, like you said, all of the actors shine. Buscemi is particularly uh, extraordinary in this, and it's just everything comes together. It's hilarious, it's petty, it's it's bizarre, it's, uh, <laughs> it's a bit too silly sometimes maybe. But it's over the topness of it all. It works really well, and it's just a really great film. No questions, really. Yeah, no, I, I agree thoroughly about the character introductions. They work really well. They seem a bit, you know, often at first, but they actually get really funny. Like there's a part where a couple of Stalin staff members come in after just collapsing the ground, and they're like, "Are we late?" And the whole thing's like sort of slowed down as they come in. 
and the titles pop up and introduce the characters. So, yeah, no, I thought it was very well done. I'm not sure about having the titles at the end, which sort of explain what happened to all the characters afterwards, because I guess this is an exaggerated one. But like uh, Matthew said, it, it works good because it's a comedy. I generally don't like historical dramas. I find them quite boring and stuffy. But if you put a comedy slant on it, especially an absurdist slant, whether it be in a film like The Death of Stalin or The Favourite, it really makes me perk up and it makes me a bit more interested to learn about the history rather than having a boring costume melodrama. Yeah, I think costume melodramas can have their place, but yeah, it, it's there's just so many of them, for starters, that it's harder for them to distinguish themselves. And yeah, I think history and comedy should mix more often. I mean, Black Landsman is another example. I mean, it's not exactly the same kind of history, but that, that, that's also another thing we both loved and that kind of has this lighter approach to a pretty serious subject. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. Comedy and history should probably mix more more often for these kinds of uh, experiences. And uh, moving on to uh, my number three, which I guess you, there are some darkly comedic elements in there, but uh, it's not what most people would uh, think about, is Happy End by uh, Michael Haneke. Which you know is often called a lesser Hanukkah, and given the power of his best work, it, it may very well be that's that uh, that's the case. But it's still an incredible, unnerving experience, and frankly, uh, equally as unyielding and bleak as uh, killing off a sacred deer. Uh, and just. <laughs> Before I continue, don't worry. My next two choices won't actually be as soul-crushing as these two. But what strikes me as the most viscerally uh, riveting here is uh, just how it makes detached footage stand out and even more powerful. It films on smartphone screens. Like literally everything else is black. We just see the smartphone. They shoot the computer screens and just that alone we have security camera footage tv footage and it all ties into this sense of absolute detachment uh, and alienation from what we're actually uh, watching and even uh, in this more shall we say natural uh, stages the camera and its angles are often entirely static and purposefully obscured leaving just so much hidden from the frame. I mean, obviously, many films have dissected uh, the upper classes and power relations, and I don't think this is necessarily even the most striking part of what Haneke does here. Uh, e even as she showcases you know, this largely damaged family in all their splendor, including their uh, lived-in servants, which uh, you know, the, the grandson essentially at one point uh, describes as slaves. And it's just starting from beginning to end in its simple mundanity, not, not to mention the, the tie-ins with the refugee crisis. I really think that the existentialism and relative inhumanity is even more striking, uh, completely this look at modern society, and, and not to mention just the powerful chemistry between uh, John Lewis uh, Trintignant and his uh, granddaughter, you know, the utter destruction of the grandson played by the wonderful uh, Franz uh, Rogowski, who is in several uh, Berlin School films, uh, 
and just the ending itself. And there's just so many great performances there. Huppert is uh, excellent uh, as uh, always. And the film just feels so multi-layered with so many damaged and discomforting human beings and experiencing at the center and the soul crushing airy underbelly of this existential doom and despair uh, ever present throughout. Yes, I agree with you, Chris. At the end, this multi-layer film, we have all these uh, characters interacting with uh, one another, whether it is uh, the grandfather or um, is a uh, daughter and uh, son it's really um, hard to uh, really know what everyone is uh, thinking in this uh, film as i said we have all these uh, characters who have their own uh, issues sometimes a very serious one including uh, people being uh, in a coma or um, a work accident that uh, took place at uh, isabelle huper uh, construction site you you can you can tell that uh, they try to uh, you know co- communicate with each other sometimes uh, communicating by uh, a computer and uh, text uh, text chat rather than uh, talking directly to you know, to one another yeah it's um, quite uh, sad in a way the film is probably not uh, Anika's best movie I would uh, I would say I, I'm a huge fan of uh, most of his uh, films but yeah, I would agree this one is a lesser Heineke because I feel like he's trying to uh, tackle on the subjects that he already talked about in uh, in uh, previous films. And I, I feel like this is uh, a mix of um, well themes he had uh, throughout his whole uh, filmography, but uh, it gives the sense that um, nothing is really developed enough, let's say. I mean, it, it was done already in other films, but uh, yeah, it, it looks like um, a patchwork of uh, themes he likes to uh, film about. But um, yeah, I think it uh, likes sometimes uh, details and maybe maybe I would have appreciated if uh, the film went a bit more into some, some of the subjects that are talked about in the film. So yeah, both Clem and Chris have talked about the description of Happy End as a lesser Hanukkah film, and I would agree with that description. Although I know Chris doesn't support that, I would say that's quite an accurate description of the film. I thought there was a lot of interest going on, especially like Chris said, the uh, opening of it, which is on a smartphone screen where all we see is text messages. And then, like Clem said later on, you've got some characters who would prefer to talk via computer to each other rather than speak directly to each other, which is really interesting. And I thought, oh, okay, so Hanukkah is going to try and explore maybe some social media and the way that communications have changed a bit over time. But these parts are only really as a very small part of the overall narrative. Only really pops up on occasion. It's not like an unfriended thing where everything's all on just on one screen. The other thing is that, and it might just be the print of the film that I watched, but the subtitles for the smartphone only came on the smartphone. So rather than at the bottom of the whole widescreen frame, it would just be like narrowly on the smartphone. So I was having a lot of trouble actually reading the translations of the French. I mean, some of it I can guess because I've done a bit of French in high school. But I found that a little bit distracting. 
So, I mean, if you compare it to something like the Unfriended films or other films that have been on a computer screen, they sort of tend to zoom in on parts of it, on bits and pieces, so it's not just all, like, long shot. And I guess the way that Hanukkah's done it, we sort of get that long shot of the phone, we've got that long shot of the computer screen, so you're sort of squinting to see what they're writing, which I guess I found a little bit more intimate. Uh, sorry, a little bit less intimate. It'd probably be more intimate and more involving for me if I could clearly see what they're typing because that's just a really interesting process. But look, beyond that, the only part of the film that really struck a chord with me, with me was the whole granddaughter-grandfather relationship. I thought that was really well handled. I thought both actors were amazing in the roles there, especially uh, the young girl that, whose name I could try and say, but I'll be end up butchering it, uh, Fantine Hardouin. Anyway, she, she's excellent in it, um, as well as uh, Trignadant, which probably pronounced the name also incorrectly. But the chemistry between them, the way they eventually bond and realise they've got more in common than they thought because they both have a bit of a sadistic streak to them without spoiling too much was excellent. Uh, the rest of the film and all the dramas about the workplace incident, yeah, just did nothing for me. I think if the film was really about just the granddaughter and the grandfather and a bit more social media in there, I think I would have loved it. At the moment, it's more of a like for me, so not a bad film. I'd say it's a good film, but yes, a lesser Hanukkah for me. Definitely a great film for the French pronunciation police, this one. This is not uh, the kind of film I love in general, um, which is perhaps why I haven't seen much Hanukkah. There's something that feels a little smug to me, like, look at these puppets, uh, how ridiculous they are, and they never feel to me like real characters. There's definitely truth in the satire that Hanukkah brings, but I, I just don't really believe in these characters for the most part. But again, I haven't seen much. Yeah, it's a film that I you know, appreciate on just a technical level. I think the way he uses screens, uh, as you guys mentioned, is, is you know quite efficient. And... I like the end of it, actually. Uh, the, the final shot with um, the, the water is involved, let's say. Uh, but yeah, it's just not the kind of film that I love in general. I, I just have a little trouble with it. I do agree that the, the performances are also quite good. I mean, you get Isabelle Huppert and Jean-Louis Trintignant, they're just always going to be very good. And yeah, the child performance by Fantine Arduin is also, is also quite, quite good. Very good. And uh, with that, we've actually covered our, our number 10s and number 3s of 2017. And, uh, you know, looking at uh, the clock here, we're already well past the 90-minute mark. It, it's probably going to look uh, a bit shorter when it's all edited down, but this might be a very good and natural place to just pause the discussion, let this be part one of what looks to be a really excellent two-parter here. So, thank you so much for listening, everyone. And uh, join us again next time when we continue the countdown, revealing our number twos and then finally our number one favorite film of 2017. You have been listening to Talking Images, the official podcast of ICMforum.com.